Chag Sameach, everyone. Good Yom Tiv. Now more than uh, two years ago, nearly everyone was predicting the death of print media. Newspapers, they told us, were fossils, bygone relics of a bygone age. And to tell you the truth, this prediction wasn't sophistry. Newspapers across the country were shuttering down. For example, the stock price of the New York Times merely a decade ago had gone from $50 a share to less than $4 a share in the span of 10 years. So the death of newsprint threw only more questions into the fire. People were asking questions that if papers can't survive, how would journalism survive? But then all of this points to a hard truth that we suffer with. Just when you think you know what you know, you're introduced to what you don't know. Or as the old saying goes, there are known knowns, which are the things that you know. There are known unknowns. Those are the things that we didn't know, but now we know them because we know them. And then there are unknown unknowns, which are the things that you'll never know because you don't know them. So this is all true about newspapers and journalism and print media. But then Donald Trump happened. And now nearly every major American newspaper has experienced a rising wave of subscriptions that no one would have imagined even a year ago. In fact, the New York Times stock price now hit $20 immediately after the election, with people anticipating the need for good journalism for years to come. And it was that same New York Times that published a small article just before the election, actually on the day of the election itself. It told the readers that Ivanka and Jared Kushner, daughter and son-in-law of candidate Trump and members of the Jewish people, had taken a trip to Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Their destination on that day was a visit to what is known as the Ohel, which is a building that contains the grave of the late Lubavitcher Rebbe, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, with all the polls showing a tight but leaning race in favor of Hillary Clinton. Jared and Ivanka figured it was time to invoke some divine help and decided to, to, to visit this dead rabbi's grave was just the way to get it. The truth is they aren't alone. The daily traffic of people to Rabbi Schneerson's grave is enormous. Its proximity to John F. Kennedy Airport makes it a destination and layover spot for thousands and thousands of Jews throughout the world. A fax machine nearby, don't laugh, this is true. A fax machine nearby receives over a thousand messages every day asking from this dead rabbi blessings for health, success, marriage matches, and even wedding invitations addressed to him and his deceased wife. The approximations of this isn't new to humans. In fact, the landscape of human history is scattered with examples of this. Looking back into the reaches of not only Jewish history, but human history, we see that the Egyptian kings of years past looked to prove that they didn't die. Their kingdoms were survived through dynasties. Their remains were preserved in entirety through, through becoming mummies. Their eternal life would be guaranteed through some of the most grand and immense and elaborate buildings ever fashioned by humans, called pyramids. 
And the fascination with the pyramids leads us to, leads us to ask why they were built. These were enormous efforts spanning decades of work, employing thousands of paid and thousands of enslaved workers, using large resources and materials. And the answer we have is that the pharaohs never imagined that the pyramids were places where they would be laid to rest for eternity. They believed that these were places where they would pass through and continue to live. This is why they were so elaborate and beautiful and incredibly well-built. Thousands of years later, they still stand as a reminder of what they hoped for. It was the physical stamp of eternal life. And looking back into our history, we know something else. We know that Moses was raised as an Egyptian. That he was plucked from the waters of the Nile as a baby by the Pharaoh's daughter. He was brought up and educated in the palace of the Pharaoh as one of them. But when it is time for Moses to die on Har Nevo on Mount Nebo, we discover that his choice is to die in a way that is entirely anti-ethical as to how he was raised. Think about it. Moses does not leave a dynasty behind. There are brief messages of his children in the Torah, and there are no mentions of his grandchildren at all. His authority passes to his student, Joshua. He doesn't ask for his remains to be left as a mummy. And more than that, the location of where he is buried is unknown. It even goes so far, the Torah does, to tell us that no one knows to this day where he is buried. And those words were written 2,000, perhaps even 3,000 years ago. And remarkably, it is as true today as it was when it was first written, because no one knows where Moses is buried. Yes, I know. There is a Muslim site near the Jordan River called Nebe Musa, where some believe he is buried. But given that it is on the west side of the river, actually in the land of Israel, and Moses was forbidden to enter into it, it's hard to buy that. Others say that there is a water spring at the base of Har Nevo of Mount Nebo in Jordan, which is possible, but archaeologists warn us time and time again that the names of mountains over thousands of years, they shift and change. In short, we don't know where he's buried. But this man, who took his people out of Egypt, dies in a way that looks to a brute, any trace of Egyptianness in how he dies. And in doing so, he tells a powerful story to them and to us, their children. And this is the story. The day that Moses descends from Mount Sinai, he holds in his arm two stone tablets, engraved with the law of God, which is remembered as this day, the holiday of Shavuot. And what should have been a moment of elation turns quickly into emotion and a moment of fear and loss. The people, frightened at Moses' absence, fashion a calf of gold to replace him. And seeing that, Moses throws the tablets down to the ground. And while all seems almost lost, Jewish tradition reminds us that what our eyes see may not be real. That Moses takes those tablets, this gift from God to us, and he casts them downward thinking that he would rather destroy them because the people are neither worthy nor ready to accept what was given. And as the tablets strike the ground, about to shatter, 
Moses sees the remarkable. That the letters engraved on the stones lift off and soar back to heaven at the moment that the rock strikes the ground to break. In other words, the thing, the very things that made the stones into commandments were never destroyed. At the moment of their seeming destruction, we are taught not to trust the eye. Because all that there is is not all that we can see. That the tablets were gone, but not the words. And I wonder if that was the moment that Moses stopped being an Egyptian. I wonder if seeing something survive despite its destruction taught Moses that he wouldn't need a pyramid or a dynasty in order to be remembered. What Moses needed is what we need. To find the letters of a person's life. And in finding those precious letters, we remember that dead is not dead. That a person loved is not lost. And that a life ended is not a life forgotten. What struck that day for me, from reading from the New York Times, was that a visit to a dead person's grave on the eve of a pivotal election, even that of an admittedly great man, leads our hearts to the wrong place. We do not stand at the graves of those we love believing that that is where they are. Nor do we stand at a grave in believing that they can control circumstance and chance for us. In life, it would have been impossible. Could it then be true in death? We stand at the grave of those we love and humbly admit that they are not there. That marker is but a signpost that reminds us we shared space at one time with them on this earth. But it is also true that those we love still shape our lives by not focusing on their passing, but remembering how they lived. Their greater story to be told is despite the breaking of their tablets, is how their words return back to their source. But their better story is found in us remembering their strength and their courage and their love and their kindness and placing their words on our tablets. For that reason, Yuskur is not held at cemeteries, but in synagogues. It is not recited every day or every Shabbat, but on holidays when we tell the story of the Jewish people. For at the moment those tablets were shattered, Moses knew that his eternity would be found in words. Because words like love are eternal. His body was not preserved, but his spirit was and is. As the letters and words peeled off the surface of the tablets and returned to heaven, he had all the answers he needed. His fate would be with those words. And our fate too are with those words. We say the names of our mothers or our fathers, our sons or our daughters, our husbands or our wives, our brothers or our sisters. We speak of their lives. And in doing so, we capture their words. It is for this reason why the rabbi said that the soul is made up of words. There was a story told of a hero of mine, a European rabbi named Mendel from the city of Kutsk. 
upon the death of his beloved teacher, his students asked him what was the most special memory he had of the teacher that he had just lost. And the rabbi thought briefly and told them, whatever it was he was doing at the moment. This morning we turn our hearts to those moments and we are grateful, pained but grateful that we have just the words to make them true. Chag Sameach.